The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. All right, are we ready to begin? I'm going to start right on time, if not a minute or so early, because we have a lot of material to get through today, and I want to do my best to get through it in time to then uh, have times for questions. This is a Maybe one of my favorite uh, days of uh, this seven-week series. We have one more week to go next week. Um, but uh, this, there's a lot of meat that we're going to be getting into here today, so I want to get right into it. Uh, as folks are just still coming in, you'll just have to catch them up, I guess. So let's remind ourselves where we're at. We're at week six of our Doctrine of Man uh, study. Uh, we began by looking at man as God intended, because we're not experiencing the God's ideal yet. Uh, we once did as humanity, we were uh, as God intended us to be. And we learned that we were created in God's image. And we learned what God's image essentially was. It's a, the, the personhood, our, our, uh, our will, intellect, volition that we have. We, related, we realized though that God's image has been wounded by sin. Not destroyed by sin, but has been wounded by sin. And then we looked at the nature of man, and we learned that man essentially is dualistic. By that, we learned that scripture clearly teaches we both have a material and an immaterial aspect to us. That's called dualism. And then we looked at, okay, sir, are you a trichotomist or a dichotomist? Do you believe that the, the, there's the body, soul, spirit? Those are three distinct things. Or do you believe that there's the body and soul and spirit are kind of the, the, essentially the same thing, the two sides of the same coin? You could be either. So we looked at trichotomy, dichotomy, and we also looked that week at the origin of the soul. So where do souls come from? And we looked at the options of pre-existence, of souls being created, uh, traducianism, remember from the Greek word tradux to, to sort of the, the, uh, the root of a vine or something, the whole idea that, um, that when the sperm and the egg come together and united, out of that a soul is produced. Or emergentism was another option, where somehow at the level of development, um, complexity uh, as the a human becomes more complex in our development uh, in, uh, in the womb at one point a soul emerges from that whole process pre-existence creation traducianism or emergentism were four options when it comes to where a soul comes from we learned that okay so that was man as God intended uh, created in God's image and the nature of mankind. And then we slid into, but man as we presently exist. And we looked at the fall of man and what the Bible says about the fall. Not the physical fall, but meaning no longer in the state that we are created or designed to be. We looked at the nature of sin and the origin of sin. And we realize that sin is the rejection of God's nature. It's the rejection of God's authority. It's the result of creaturely freedom, we learned. We learned that the fall is a historical event, that we went from the state of integrity to the state of corruption. And then we looked at, the last time we were together, the results of the fall of man. And we looked at three main options. Remember Pelagianism, after a guy named Pelagius, who taught that essentially Adam was just a bad example. That's all. He was just a bad example that we shouldn't follow. And then there was something called semi-Pelagianism, which was, no, he was more than a bad example. We inherited a weakened will from Adam. We didn't inherit his guilt uh, semi-Pelagianism taught, but we inherited a weakened will. And then there was the Augustinian view, which is called the view of the doctrine of original sin, which teaches that, no, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Um, we, we inherited his guilt and his sin and his sinful nature. 
and uh, we kind of landed upon a version of the original sin doctrine as the main doctrine that's proposed today by most Protestants, evangelicals, and even Roman Catholics. Um, in some very real ways, Scripture seems to teach that Adam represented us at that moment, that he did what we would have done if we had been there. In, in God's omniscience, he knew that you and I would have done just what Adam did at that moment. And so at that moment, uh, human natures became corrupted, um, and that corruption is somehow passed on to us so that we're born with corrupted, sinful natures, that we're not able to not sin. If you can think that through, we're not able to not sin. Which brings us to today, which is the whole topic of the response of fallen man. Okay, so we are fallen, we have these corrupt natures and so on. So how have we responded as human beings? Let's look at the scriptural data, the biblical data, what it says. We're going to first look at Romans 9, and I strongly encourage you to follow along today in your Bibles. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 6. Um, and we'll go on to 10 verse 13. But before I read this passage, while you're looking for Romans 9, 6, let me give you the context, because the context is pretty crucial to understanding this famous passage. Um, Paul's writing, as you remember, when we went verse by verse through the book of Romans, we learned that Paul is writing, and particularly speaking in this segment, he's speaking to Messianic Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Messianic Jewish believers means people who were uh, born and raised Jews who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, Messianic Jews. And the Messianic Jewish believers were growing more and more confused. They had acknowledged Jesus as their promised Messiah. And they were anticipating the classic fulfillment of the messianic promises with all of its political uh, you know, attachments and undertones. They were anticipating this, um, but it wasn't happening. You know, so what's the delay? Has God turned his back on Israel? That was the question. And then there were Gentile believers that he was writing to. Um, these Gentile believers were looking at Israel and they had some questions of their own. They're saying, okay, Paul, you just said that God is for us. Um, that's great, but wasn't he for Israel as well? And things aren't going too well for Israel right now, so how secure are we really in our faith in Christ? So Paul answers both of those questions, the Messianic Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. He addresses both of them in Romans chapter 9. So let's look at it, analyze it sort of a bite at a time here. Starting at verse 6 of chapter 9. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, quoting Old Testament, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Just pause there for a second. So what he just said is, hey, folks, there's an Israel within Israel. There's a physical Israel, and then there's a spiritual Israel inside of that. Let's keep reading at verse 9. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, 
Okay, there's the spiritual Israel inside of the physical Israel. And you see this illustrated, Paul says, as the covenant promise was given only to the descendants of Isaac and Jacob. So that's how the covenant promise was passed on. It wasn't promised to every physical Jew, every physical descendant of Abraham. He says, no, it's only through the the offspring of Isaac and Jacob. Well, is this unjust? Is this unfair? Not at all. Keep reading, starting at verse 14. What shall then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, a lot of people stop here and they don't keep reading, get the full context. Keep reading. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. So Paul's saying, listen, it's not unjust. God can decide however he wants to do things. Well, how has he decided to do things? Keep reading. One of you will say to me, well, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Well, he says, first of all, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, um, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And In the very place where it was said to them, he's quoting Old Testament, you are not my people, there will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. So pause here. Is this unjust? Paul just said, no, it's not unjust. God can do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. He can do things however he wants to do things. But, and here's the key, God has sovereignly decided that it's not physical Israel, but spiritual Israel through whom the promises, the covenant will flow. Is that unjust? Paul says, no, that's how he's decided. And he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But keep reading. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. 
Since they didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by law, quoting, the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend from the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you, and here's the message. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So is this, you know, God has... Um, called spiritual Israel, and there's a physical Israel, and there's a spiritual Israel. Is this unjust? No, God can do whatever he wants. And any frustration he just said that Israel has in experiencing all the fullness of God has nothing to do with some decree of God. Israel's frustration is the result of their own unbelief and their own disobedience. That's what he just said. God has sovereignly chosen how he will save people. He can do things however he wants. How has he chosen? Here's how he's chosen. He has chosen to save those who place their faith in the saving work that he did for them through Jesus. It's that simple. That's what that passage taught. Galatians chapter 2. I should say Galatians chapter 3. Again, it's important for us to, to understand the context first. Um, Paul is addressing Messianic Jews uh, who are believers now, uh, and they've been deceived into requiring Gentile converts, new converts, new Christ followers, to being circumcised and adhering to the Jewish law. Okay, you've accepted Jesus, that's good, that's a good starting place, but you've also got to follow the law. And Paul's responding saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, um, he, he asked them if God's presence in their life was due to them obeying the law or due to their faith in Christ? And the implied answer, their faith in Christ. In verses three and four of Galatians three, he asks them if they're exchanging, if they're exchanging something that works, faith in Christ, for something that didn't work, trusting in their own deeds. And in Galatians three, five, he asked if they experienced, did you experience miraculous deeds and miraculous interventions from God because you suddenly became good enough? Or is it an act of grace in response to your faith in him? The implied answer again, oh, it was a work of grace in response to their faith. So he then follows this up by declaring that God's covenant with Israel was never based on physical deeds, but was always based on their faith in him. Look at Galatians 3, starting at verse 6. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him. His belief was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
So in other words, he just taught in Galatians 3, faith, trusting in God's decrees and God's activity is the foundation of life in the kingdom of God. There's a theme here in Romans and Galatians. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting at, uh, let's look at verse 8 and 9. Again, the context, Paul is laying out all that God has done on our behalf. And he emphasizes that prior to Christ's presence in our lives, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's what he said in chapter 2, verse 1. We were separated from God. We weren't reaching out to God. And our lifestyles reflected our separation. And then he says this, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. He says, uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. So salvation he just taught here is purely a God-given thing. It's not the result of our work. It's a gift that has been received by faith. Now this passage has been misunderstood a bit and we'll get to this in a moment. So let's systematize then all of this biblical data. Those are the three key passages when it comes to um, you know, our response, the human response to uh, the fall of man and our response to what God has done. Historically, there have been three major responses. First of all, there's what's called the reformed view. The reformed view. Does anybody, is, uh, Bob Luce here? Bob, can you go to the soundboard and see if you can tweak? This is bothering me. Um, th there's the reform view. Now, what do we mean by reformed? In, in 1517, uh, a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther published his 95 Theses, a document which challenged the teaching of the existing church and was based in Rome. It unleashed a torrent of theological debate and built up frustration with church practices. This movement became known as the Reformation or the Protestant Reformation. Protestant because they protested. Protestants. So they, it was a reformation on the church that's based in Rome. So they were called reformers or Protestant reformers. Okay? And uh, the leaders of this movement became known as the reformers. And Martin Luther, Martin Luther you're making it worse, Bob. Martin Luther and John Calvin were the leading reformers. Um, and Calvin's students uh, started something, or kind of put his teaching together in something called TULIP, um, the TULIP doctrine. And here's the TULIP doctrine. It's on your outline. So here's the reform, reformers' understanding of what the passages we just read, what they were teaching. Okay? Number one, they taught we are totally depraved. Every aspect of our lives is touched by sin. Okay, that's number one there. We are totally depraved. That's, that's what the T stood for, total depravity. That they said we're totally depraved. Every, all aspects of our lives is touched by sin. Not meaning that we're as bad as we could possibly be. That's not what it means. It means every part of us is tarnished. And this led to a teaching amongst the reformers called the bondage of the will, meaning that Humanity is incapable of freely choosing God. Our, our natures are so tarnished that we are incapable of choosing God. They, they would say we are dead, like a dead human can't do anything. We're dead, and so we can't choose God. Okay? So you paint yourself into a corner right away with that understanding, but that was their teaching. Secondly, next blank, they teach that God unconditionally chose some to be saved and others to be damned. God unconditionally chose 
some to be saved, and some to be damned. That's the U, unconditional election. Unconditional election. Unconditional meaning, it has nothing to do with you. God just randomly said, you're saved, you're not. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Nothing to do with your decision, nothing to do with your life. All have sinned, all have fallen short, nobody's good enough, so, and you can't choose me, so I'm just going to randomly choose and pick and choose. That's uh, part of their understanding of these passages that we just read. So God unilaterally chooses or elects those to whom he'll give faith to believe. I'm going to give you faith, but I'm not going to give you faith. Okay? Thirdly, reformers taught that Jesus died only for those he chose to save. Jesus died only for those he chose to save. This is the L. It's called limited atonement. Thank you, Bob. I feel better about that. Limited atonement. Um, Christ did not die for the world. He only died for those he chose beforehand he'd give faith to. Okay? Otherwise, in this view, uh, Christ's blood would be wasted or ineffective. So Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect, those that he, he chose ahead of time that he was going to save. The fourth view the reformers held to is God's prevenient grace. We'll under, explain what prevenient means in a moment. God's prevenient grace is irresistible. You, you can't resist it. It's impossible to say no to his grace. God's prevenient grace is irresistible. It's impossible to say no to his grace. That's the I in tulip, irresistible grace. Resistible grace. Okay, you just can't say no to it. Now, what does prevenient mean? Prevenient means coming before. It means preceding. So we can't reach out to God because we're dead to God. And so God reaches, gives us grace first, gives us the ability to reach out to him, okay? And, uh, and their teaching is that when God does this, it's impossible to say no to that grace. When God gives you the ability to, 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 to say yes to him, it's impossible to say no to that prevenient grace. You, you're just, it's an overpowering force, okay? That's the teaching of irresistible grace. And then the, the fifth view of the tulip is once you're saved, it is impossible to turn away from God. Once you're saved, it's impossible to turn away from God. This is what's known as the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Meaning, since God decides who will be saved, and since God is the one who gives you faith to be saved, and since you can't say no to God, once you are saved, you are always saved. It's impossible to say no to this grace in your life. Okay? That is the reformed view. That's what their understanding of the passages we read earlier. I will have a chance, to hopefully, to discuss this in a few moments. Let's keep moving. The Roman Catholic Church then responded to the Reformation with something called the Counter-Reformation. Think of it as a Roman Catholic revival, okay? So the Reformation was a wake-up call to the Roman Catholic Church. And a key portion of their response was something called the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent was a theological conference held in Trent, Italy. Church leaders gathered 25 times over a span of 20 years, from 1545 to 1563. And amongst other things, this council produced the following explanation of the Roman Catholic view of man's response to the fall. So here now in your outline is the Roman Catholic response to the, to the Reformation. 
Uh, number one, they say God begins with prevenient grace. God initiates the process. Okay, so God begins with prevenient grace. He initiates the process. So the Roman Catholic view is, yes, we understand that we are dead in sins. We would not reach out to God. So God reaches out to us first with prevenient grace. He initiates the process. Secondly, the Catholic, Roman Catholic view is, we are free. We are free to resist and reject or humbly receive God's offer of grace. Okay, so here's where they differ with the reformers. The reformers said, no, you can't say no to God's grace. The Roman Catholic said, oh, no, you can. You can say no. You can... God gives me the ability to reach out to him, and I can say, I can resist that. You, you are free to resist. Number three in the Roman Catholic view, God responds to our acceptance with justification, meaning he infuses us with his grace. So when we, if we say yes to his prevenient grace, he responds to that, to our acceptance with justification. What does that mean? What's justification mean? Justification is a declarative act. It's, it's a declaration. It doesn't change your behavior. It changes your status. It's like a judge says, all right, I declare you not guilty. That doesn't make you any better of a citizen. It just means in the courts, you are not guilty. And that's what justification is. God, we are justified, meaning God says, I pronounce you not guilty. Based on what? Based on what Jesus has done. He's paid your debt, so you are free now, okay? So it's a divine act where he declares a believing sinner to be righteous and acceptable before him based on what Jesus did. Uh, write a couple verses on the, your margin there beside this. 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. It's because of him, of Christ, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Romans 3.23-24, jot that down. Romans 3.23-24 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, okay? So justification doesn't make you righteous. It declares you to be righteous. Sanctification is then what kind of makes you righteous, changes you. Okay, the next step where the Roman Catholic Church is where the Roman Catholic Church takes a bit of an interesting turn. Number four step for the Roman Catholic view was this infusion of grace that we receive enables us to perform works that merit salvation. This infusion of grace enables us to perform works that merit salvation. So God justifies us at the beginning because of our faith, but it doesn't end there. God gives us the power to do good works. And those God-empowered good works, along with our faith, merit salvation. The Roman Catholic church looks to James 2.24, James 2.24 to support this. Listen to what James wrote. You see that a person is considered righteous, and that, those two words, considered righteous, is the same Greek word for justified. So James is saying, you see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Interesting. So that's the Roman Catholics look at that passage and say, okay, so God gives you a grace, enables you to perform good works, and your faith and those good works together merit salvation. And they would appeal to James 2.24 to back that up. Number five, we'll discuss all this in a few moments. Number five, 
we experience eternal life then. After all that, we experience eternal life. As we, re- as we rely upon our faith in God's grace, and as we continue to do good works in the Roman Catholic view, we have eternal life. Our faith and our works work together. So how do we respond to all of this? Here's the classic evangelical Protestant view. Okay, not the reformers, not the Reformation, Protestant Reformation views, but the classic evangelical Protestants. Here we go. Number one, we would, you'll see that it's almost mirroring identically the Roman Catholic view for the first couple. Number one, God begins with prevenient grace. God initiates the process. He begins with prevenient grace. He initiates the process. We agree with the Reformed and the Roman Catholic view that apart from God's instigation, God's initiation, we would not, left to ourselves, reach out to God. We are dead in sin, left on our own. Scripture says no one's righteous. No one searches out. No one reaches out for God. So unless God took the first step towards us, we would not take a step towards him. So God's prevenient grace is necessary. He initiates the process. You know, Romans 1, 10 to 11. There's no one righteous, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God on our own. We wouldn't. Number two, the evangelical view. We are free to resist, reject, or humbly receive God's offer of grace. We are free to resist, reject, or humbly receive God's offer of grace. So we would agree with the Roman Catholic view, and we would oppose the reformers' view that God's grace can be resisted. We agree with the Catholics. Yes, you can, you can resist God's grace. The Reformation, Calvin and, and Luther and them said, no, you, you can't resist it. We would say, no, you can resist God's prevenient grace. We don't believe that God individually predetermines who will and will not be saved. We don't believe that God randomly says, all right, I'm going to give you faith and I'm not going to give you faith. We don't believe scripture teaches that. We believe that God's offer of salvation is open to all. And we have a role in accepting or resisting God's prevenient uh, uh, grace drawing upon our souls. So we can accept it or we can resist it. We can push against God. Here's a key. We understand election to be corporate, not individual. This is crucial. So when God talks about election and people being predestined and so on, we understand this election to be talking about a body of people, not individual peoples. What's the difference? Paul is saying that God has predestined a body of people to be saved. He says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this body of people who call on the name of the Lord, they're called the church, the body of Christ. They're the elect. And if you are in that body, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. How you get into that body is up to you. But that body is predestined. Picture a vehicle going through a car wash. If you're inside the vehicle, you are guaranteed to remain dry. If you are in the body of Christ, you are guaranteed to be predestined to be glorified and transferred into his image. You're not predestined whether or not you're in that body or not. That's up to you by your faith. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who calls on the name of the Lord? People who, who respond positively to his prevenient grace. Okay? So election is corporate. God draws you to go in, come into this body, but you can say no to him. 
If you say yes, if you place your faith in him, then you are predestined to be conformed, okay? So whether you, whenever you read passages about the elect or predestination, think the church of Jesus Christ. Don't think specific individuals. And everything will suddenly make complete sense. Now, unlike the reformers, we, along with the Apostle Paul, I believe, do not see faith as a work. See, here's a trap that the reformers fell into, is they saw, um, we don't see trusting Christ as a work. And the reformers did. They see, well, if you're placing your faith in Christ, well, you're working. No, faith and works, Paul always contrasted faith and work. He, always, he contrasted them constantly in his writings. Faith is not a work, it's faith. It's trusting. It's not a work. Neither do we see saving faith as a gift. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is often a misunderstood passage. Because nowhere, you say, nowhere does the Bible say that faith, saving faith, is a gift that God gives you. And people say, oh, no, no, no. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. It says, um, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of work, so no one can boast. Here's the problem. The problem is that's not what the Greek says. Meaning, um, uh, put it to you this way. So Greek is sort of like French, I think German as well, if I'm not mistaken, where it has you know, gender. So there's feminine, there's masculine, and there's neuter, right? And you link together the feminine uh, and, and, the, and the masculine words together. So for example, when you're writing in Greek, in English, we have, we have to have put the words in certain order. In Greek, it's like a puzzle. And you can just throw the words together, and then you've got to match them up according to their gender and verbs and so on. So that, um, that verse, for by grace are you saved, um, by, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, Not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works. I'm doing this very quickly and sloppily. Uh, not of works. Okay. I'm just going to leave it from there so no one can boast. Here's the thing. So the faith um, and that, okay, and uh, he says, then, yourselves, not a verse. This is the gift of God, I believe. So he says, okay, this is the word I'm looking for. I don't want to worry about that. Not this, but that. Or not that, but this, I should say. So here's the key words. By grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not of works. What the reformers were saying was that this and faith are linked together. When Paul says this is not of yourselves, yeah, I've got it wrong. Quote it correctly here. By grace are you, have you been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. That's where I confuse myself. And this is not of yourselves, but a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Here's where they got confused. By grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. They say that this points back to faith. This is not of yourselves. This faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. That's not what this says. How do we know that? The word faith is feminine. The word this is neuter. 
which means this refers not back to faith. If it wanted to refer back to faith, it would be feminine. But it's not. It's neuter, which means it refers back to the whole clause in front of it. By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. That whole concept, this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So this whole way that God has done things is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. This does not refer back to faith. If Paul wanted it to, he would have made it feminine. But he didn't. He made it neuter. So it grammatically doesn't work in the Greek language. That's crucial to understand this passage. So faith is not a work. The Bible doesn't teach faith as a work. Faith and works are, are two different things. And nowhere is saving faith seen as a gift that God gives you. No, faith is, is literally, whenever, when you see the word faith, it means to trust. You're placing your trust in God. Let's keep moving. Number three. God responds to our acceptance with justification. He infuses us with grace. He responds to our acceptance with justification. So we affirm that our standing before God is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith alone, as opposed to faith plus good deeds. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church, we don't see James 2.24 teaching that our works contribute to our justification. Okay, but what about that verse? It says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And that right, considered righteous is justified. So James said, you see that a person is justified by what they do, not by faith alone. How would we respond to that? Well, again, context, folks. James is addressing someone who claims, in this passage of James, he's addressing someone who claims to have faith but has no deeds. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. You say you have faith but no deeds. James is pointing out that a deedless faith is an empty faith and in reality is not true faith in Christ. He points out that merely believing in God is not enough if your belief doesn't have the quality that it causes you to actually act on it. He says, hey, even demons believe and they tremble. So just believing is not enough. That's not the quality of faith that saves you, he's saying. So the verse is teaching us the nature, the essence, the quality of saving faith. What does saving faith look like? It looks like a faith that causes you to be changed. Okay, you show me your faith without your deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I do. The quality of faith. So we teach, there's an old saying, we teach faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We teach in faith alone, but not faith that is alone. It's a faith that produces good works. We're not saved by the good works. We're saved by the one whom, in whom we place our faith. Number four, perseverance. We are called to continue in the state of submission to and cooperation with God's indwelling and empowering spirit. So we are called to continue in the state of submission to and cooperation with. Isn't that working for your salvation? No, you're, you're trusting in Christ. And as long as you continue to trust in Christ, you're, you're guaranteed to be saved. Our good deeds don't merit our salvation, nor do they maintain our salvation. Christ's work alone merits and maintains our salvation. However, we have to continue to trust in his work on our behalf. We continue to have to have faith in Christ. As long as we remain in Christ, we have absolute assurance of our salvation. Think in these terms. As long as you remain on the ship, you will not drown in the sea. 
The ship will not sink. It's unsinkable. And there's no power in the universe that can remove you from that ship against your will. The choice to remain on that ship and to trust the safety of the ship is yours and yours alone. The ship does all the work of floating. You simply have to trust, have faith in the ship's ability to float. It's not work to trust. When you're on, if you've ever been on a cruise, you know there's no work involved whatsoever. You just sit around and eat, right? Nobody says, I've been on a cruise for the last two weeks. Wow, what a lot of work, not sinking. No, you trust the ship. You placed your faith in the ship. You didn't jump off the ship. Good for you. You know, how hard was that? Well, it's the identical. Faith is not a work. It's trusting in Christ's work. Okay? And then number five, with the Catholics, we agree. We experience eternal life. Everything we need for eternal life is found in Christ. Remain in Christ and his eternal life is yours. That's the classic evangelical Protestant view. Let me open it up for questions for the last five minutes. Maybe there might be one or two, perhaps. Questions about this. I mean, we've just touched on Calvinism, Roman Catholic view, evangelical Protestantism. Surely there's a question. James is talking about evidence. How do I know that, um, that my faith is the quality of faith that is acceptable before God? Um, and, and, Paul, and James is saying, well, listen, merely a mental assent Merely believing that God exists, that's not saving faith. Because demons have that. They believe God exists. He says, no, it should be a faith, that, uh, a level of trust that, ch- that produces evidence in your life. It has a quality of, uh, of, of faith because you're placing your full weight in what Jesus did and his spirit then lives within you, which changes you. So that's the quality of faith. That's saving faith, he's saying. Not mere mental assent. Demons have that. Well, that's a classic uh, Jewish idiom. Um, To to hate means to love less. Um, That's like when Jesus said, you know, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot. And this is the same God who says that you've got to honor your father and mother. So which is it? Um, So it it, it was a Jewish idiom for, for loving less. So in other words, he's saying, listen, and what Paul's teaching there is God sovereignly chose that, um, uh, again, in his omniscience, he knew what both would do, where both would go. And, and Paul is saying, God sovereignly declared that it's through the, the line of Isaac and Jacob. Through, it's them, through them that the promise will come. It's through them that the bloodline of the Messiah will come. Um, so Jacob, I'm favoring with this. And Esau, I'm not favoring. Now, when you read the life of Esau, he was blessed. And he was taken care of. So it's not as though God said, I hate you and I'm casting you out. No, he actually uh, you know, took care of Esau. But he's simply saying, in the grand scheme of things, when we're in the context of which, which Jacob or Esau, which will have the, 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 which, through which these individuals will the promised Messiah come, it's Jacob. Both trace themselves back to, to Abraham. But it's, he, what Paul is saying and scripture is saying is it's not the physical line that saves you. It's the faith, line of faith that saves you. And Jacob represents the line of faith. Yes, the question is if God is omniscient, he will know who will be saved. Absolutely. God will know 
uh, what I will do and who will be saved. But knowing, foreknowledge does not mean causation. In the sense that the illustration I often use is, okay, I know, within my limited knowledge, that in two, three minutes, I'm going to say, God bless you folks. Next week, we're going to continue and finalize the series. And I hope to see you then. And I know in two minutes, you're all going to get up and walk out that door. That doesn't mean I'm causing you to. I'm encouraging you. But I'm not (laughs) causing you to. So foreknowledge is not the same as causation. So yes, God knows what you will do. He knows who will be saved. But that doesn't mean that he is unilaterally causing some to be saved and some not to be saved. No, I'm not denying his omniscience. He knows everything. He knows your thoughts before you say them. But the fact that he knows what you will do, the issue is, does he therefore, because he knows what I'll do, does he make me do it against my will? No. He respects your will. He knows what you will choose, but he doesn't make you choose it. But he knows what you will freely choose. Yeah, and he knows how you will respond to his work. Does God want us to freely love him? We would intuitively say yes, and you're saying, does that refute the Reformed view? I would agree. I, I, I used to be a Calvinist, um, but I, the more I studied, I realized, no, I, this doesn't fit, it doesn't work. Um, love is a free choice. Love that's not a free choice is, an, is not love. It, it's, an, it's forced you know, you're, if you medicate someone to make them love you, chances are they don't love you, right? As I've said, if I program my phone to say every morning, Darren, I love you, and I turn it on, it doesn't really love me. I've made it say that. And so, yes, highest experience you can have is to love. And love, by def- definition, is a choice you freely make. And the Reformed view, you're not freely making it. God's making you say this. I give, yeah, eternal life, no one can snatch them out of my hand but you can jump. That's what I'm saying. There's no power in the universe that, that can remove you from the ship, but you can jump from the ship. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. No devil, no demon, nothing, but you can choose to reject him. And that's not easy to do. That's a difficult thing. That's a, that's a volitional will. That's not something you just randomly do one day. That is a choice that you have made. It, I believe it takes years, if not decades, to come to that point. Once saved, always saved would be the uh, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints. That's a reformed view. Um, They would say it's impossible to say no to God's grace. We would say, no, you actually can. In fact, I think Jesus teaches that clearly. The parable of the seeds and the sowers has that option in there. Um, So if it's not possible, why did Jesus waste valuable scriptural time talking about it? Um, So I... I think scripture, when you look at the full picture of scripture, you know, it's pretty clear. And the, the, the Calvinist major point is Romans 9 passage. And, but when you look at it properly, I believe, hermeneutics, proper uh, exegesis, it's not saying what the, the, you have to stop halfway through to make it say what Calvinism says. But when you read the whole context, Paul is saying, listen, who are you to argue with God? God can do whatever he wants. And then they stop there. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He can do whatever he wants. And you know what he's decided? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that's what he's chosen to do. He could do it differently, but that's how he's chosen. So Israel is not experiencing trouble because God is sovereign. He said, because I am now making them experience trouble. He's saying, no, it's because they rejected the cornerstone. That's why it's not a mystery. They chose not the avenue of faith. They chose the avenue of works.
And that's why they're shipwrecked. So the question is about Esau and Jacob. You know, it says before, you know, the, the, elder will, the, younger will serve the, the elder will serve the younger and so on. But here's what we need to understand. When, because God makes a declaration doesn't mean he's causing it to happen. It's just like with Adam and Eve. You know, he said to Eve, you know, you will serve the man, and, and, and this is what will happen. The man will rule over you. That's not saying God's saying, and I'm going to make men rule over you and abuse you. No, he's saying, because of what you've done, this is what's going to happen. I am, I am the God, and I am prophesying. I'm telling you, I'm the God who knows the future. I see where this is all going to go, and just so you know, this is what will happen. And uh, this is what he's saying with, with Esau and, and Jacob. The, the elder will serve the younger. He's not saying, I'm making this happen. He's saying, here is how it's going to work out. So, but as a Calvinist, they would say yes. Because with a Calvinist, you cannot have any free will. If you have any aspect of free will, that means God's not in control. And God's somehow weak. And I'd say, no, that's... Our God is so powerful that he can give us absolute freedom and still control the universe. Wow. That's power. He's not a, a, a micromanager. God knows everything I'll do, and he's worked it out in conformity to his will. He is so powerful, he can let me do whatever I want, and he still controls the universe. That's true power. Next week, we're going to look at, all right, death and the afterlife. Is hell fair? And, you know, so what, you know, you live for 50 years and you die as a non-Christian and then you spend eternity burning? Is that fair? We're going to look at that next week. Is annihilation an option? What happens to us after we die? Do we float around somewhere? We're going to talk about all that next week as we conclude. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being here.